Right now, you are listening to X-Ray. I am Jefferson Smith. That is DJ Ambush. What's up, man? Hey, hey, hey. I'm having a great time, man. It's amazing. It's it's fun, right? Yes. And you woke up early, which means you actually went to bed last night. I did. I'm so happy about that. I got to bed before one. This is something we've been working on. (laughs) I don't just mean you. I mean both of us. Rob (laughs) Wagner, Senate Majority Leader, newly minted Senate Majority Leader, appointed the Senate District 19 in 2018, filling the vacated seat of Richard Devlin. What do we know else about Senator Wagner, Ambush? I didn't mean to stumble on you. He's recently served in the Lake Oswego School Board, was VP of Advancement for Portland Community College, and formerly the legislative advocate for the American Federation of Teachers. Two weeks ago, he was appointed with a new title Senate Majority Leader. Welcome, Senator Wagner. Thank you so much, Jefferson. Good morning to you. Good morning to DJ Ambush. Good morning, Senator. Ambush, I was, uh, oh, go I was ahead. afraid I was going to be late to the call because I was uh, running to the... Uh, to my uh, laundry room, and I, I had to make sure that my Jefferson Your Great Two T-shirt was clean <laughs> for the interview this morning. So, yeah, I appreciate that. That should be the next. Should that be our next merch item? <laughs> <laughs> all right, S- Senator Wagner. First of all, congratulations on your ascent, on your putting on the iron gauntlet of power in the Senate. Yeah, it's a little overstated. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I like the he runs the state. I with four teenagers at home. <clears throat> I don't even run the. I don't even run the remote control in my household. So you use that one. Um, but I, I do. I'm really happy to have an opportunity to uh, work on trying to advance a progressive agenda for Oregon and to this election cycle win as many state senate Democratic seats that we have an incredible shot. Um, uh, all the way up through 2020, through November. So your primary role as Senate Majority Leader is uh, is what? Explain that role further. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking with um, with a colleague of mine, Val Hoyle, yesterday, and she said, I hope you know that your your job is to, uh, to uh, advance your and give credit away to all of your caucus members while taking all the bullets. And, and uh, I think that honestly, during the election cycle, it is working diligently to try to make the case about why Democrats matter over Republicans. And this election cycle, this is just during the election cycle, but we have an opportunity to pick up three swing Democratic seats that would put us at 20 in the Oregon Senate, which is a walkout proof majority. And I know we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about what that means. And then during the um, during the actual legislative session, it's supporting and, and helping run a progressive agenda uh, through the legislature, you know, really elevating the voices of my colleagues and the great work that they're doing. We have this moment, and we have this moment that's happening right now in the country. We talked to Senator Frederick, one of your colleagues who had, uh, working with the POC caucus, the People of Color caucus in the Senate, in the legislature, had a set of priorities. How should we be using this moment of focus on racial justice? No, I appreciate that. I've been, um, as as many have been, um, trying to understand my role, uh, walking with a lot of privilege to lift up uh, people of color, to try to expand the narrative around Black Lives Matter, 
to help support the People of Color Caucus on advancing legislation around uh, racial equity and holding folks accountable. Um, so I, in, in doing it in a way that doesn't, you know, elevate me in that narrative. So not do to do criticize, not, you know, not to criticize folks that want to participate, but what I've been trying to do through social media and my role through um, in, in the Senate is trying to lift up voices, not expound upon how hurt I feel. It's sort of a support to get out of the way, but also double down on our commitment to actually leveraging our chance um, to advance social uh, social policy that's that's going to make a change a real change in people's lives. Senator, I would ask you, um, what steps did you take to bring you to this this point of understanding? What 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 personal steps did you take to get her? And what advice yeah. would you give to other people in legislature? Well, I I would say I've been involved in public policy making um, through it's sort of been a life commitment to work on progressive causes. So uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of my story. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, a suburban, overeducated kid who went east to college for a couple years and faced a, a major health issue that forced me to drop out of college and come home. Uh, and then in the mid-1990s, when Bob Packwood was resigning in disgrace, I worked with a group of students to start the College Democrats at Portland State University, and I was sort of, at that time, off and running, um, trying to be engaged in the political process. And so I worked as a legislative aide uh, in the Capitol, and then I ended up lobbying for 10 years for the American Federation of Teachers. I worked at Portland Community College, raising scholarship money for low-income first-generation students. But it wasn't until the election, uh, the Trump election in 2016, that I decided to uh, get off the bench and into the game. Mm. And I, I remember the moment. It was um, it was about 9:30 on that election night. In my, I was, you know, drowning my sorrows watching that black shroud uh, envelop the country. Yeah. Uh, I came home early from some what we thought was going to be an election celebration event. And I was waiting in the kitchen for my then 13-year-old daughter to come home from an activity that she had at her junior high school. And she, she was following every minute of that campaign, and she walked in the door and looked at me and just broke into tears. Mm-hmm. And I went up and I hugged her, and I said, I'm going to do everything I can do so that when I tell you, you can be anything you want to be in this world, I mean it. And the next week, I remember where I was sitting uh, at the at the kitchen table, and my mom and my sisters were there, and um, my my daughters. And by the end of the conversation, they were they had a laptop open, and they were working on finding tickets to fly out to the women's march in D.C. And I stayed home and started running, uh, starting putting together a campaign to run for our local school board, because at that time as well, with the rise of hate with the Trump campaign, mm-hmm. we saw swastikas showing up on junior high bathrooms. You know, we saw uh, children having the N-word passed on pieces of paper uh, to them in class in our junior high schools. We saw posters showing up in our high school gymnasiums with Jews being pushed into ovens. And 
So I just say, we can't have this anymore. We've got to step forward and make change. And so I, that was the initial it was uh, running for school board. And then when Senator Devlin decided to step aside after 21 years of distinguished service, I had an opportunity to run a campaign and get, get appointed to his Senate seat. It's very encouraging to hear that, you hear the personal stories to hear how these things happened in your life and affected you versus someone brought it to my attention. So thank you for that. Thank you for giving us that. Uh, what are your thoughts about the legislative priorities regarding the POC caucus and what is the path to get them passed? Yeah, I was, um, I couldn't be, first of all, I'm glad that you had Senator Frederick on uh, here this week as folks probably heard from him and know um, Senator Frederick has been a strong advocate in so many ways for uh, racial justice, social justice throughout his entire life. I call him actually the Renaissance legislator because if you if you start talking to Lou about where he's been and what he's done, it's 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 like something out of you know Forrest Gump or something. He's he is he has been a biologist and a ranch hand and you know marched with Dr. King and I'm mean, just this incredibly talented person who who at this moment uh, couldn't be better positioned to be able to lead along with Senator Manning uh, this dialogue and so with the proposed legislation I think it is affirming to hear that my colleagues will be supporting their legislative agenda heading into um, the remainder of this year and into the 2021 session and beyond. Will Republican walkouts block them? How do you block out the walkouts? Because that's what happened last time, right? It, it, the two sessions ago, I think that a lot of these priorities, a lot of Lou's priorities, got killed in the Judiciary Committee, or at least blocked in the Judiciary Committee. Then, a little bit later, there were the votes to get them done, but then the Republicans walked out. How do you deal with that now? Well, Oregon is in a, a, a sort of terrible and unique position as being is having a constitutional framework that um, allows for the level of dysfunction that we've seen over the last couple of years. And we have uh, annual, now, annual legislative sessions in the Constitution paired with a two-thirds quorum requirement for attendance. Hmm. And so what's happened is the Republican minority has figured out that they can determine the legislative agenda by threatening and now demonstrating on three occasions in the Senate uh, because we have hard deadlines, they can uh, just say we're not going to show up and we're going to go out of state and we're going to you know, tuck our tail between our legs and there's really nothing, nothing you can do. So the two things that we're focused on is, number one, trying to win back a quorum-proof majority so that when they walk out, we can still govern for the state of Oregon and make progress on uh, the initiatives that Senator Frederick was was talking about. Uh, and then we also have to figure out how to fix our constitution. We need to have a conversation with the voters about the quorum. It sounds a little abstract, but we have to figure out um, how to have that conversation. Because right now, uh, we are we don't have a functioning democracy when the voices of people who are voting to put legislators in in office to help pass uh, progressive environmental policy to help 
make uh, advancement on equity initiatives. When these things are uh, are sidelined, um, we had another uh, bill that we had been working on around sensible gun safety, and that got shelved. I, I just think that you know there's two things. One is show up at the ballot in November and let's get this done. And then the second thing is we need a longer term strategy to fix our democracy. And what is or that? Is, and what is that yeah. strategy? Is that a ballot initiative to change quorum rules? I think we have to have that conversation. Uh, I'm hoping that we can. Um, the, the other thing we can do is through rule, uh, we can also, and I, I do think that through statute, we can talk about accountability initiatives for legislators. Right now, if you walk out of the state, and you, you go to, I think some of them were in Reno, um, they were still collecting their pay and their per diem uh, for the days that we were holding sessions. So we're down there in the Capitol running committee hearings, advancing legislation to the floor of the Senate. And we had uh, our Republican colleagues who were out of state and uh, accepting full pay for, for doing that. And I think, you know, we have to start there. And then I think we have to have a conversation with voters about what it means to be able to govern uh, Oregon by having the majority, the majority's voice be able to be heard. Um, so I think that, that we do need to have the conversation around fixing the quorum rule. In an effort to have that conversation with voters, we, I think feel like this is a great opportunity to start that now. <clears throat> Senator, how did that feel? I know when I first started seeing the news on them leaving the state and like virtually being in hiding, and it, that the whole concept was completely foreign to me, that this is actually something that they could do. How did that make you feel on a personal level? I mean, it was it was blocking your efforts to to get things done. But like personally, like how did that affect you? Well, I'll tell you that when you've been around the legislature as I have, whether it was being an intern, I interned for Kate Brown, her first legislative session as a state senator, and then I I interned for uh, folks like the Oregon Nurses Association and. Um, and then I, I worked for the American Federation Teachers. So I spent a lot of time in the Capitol. There's something that happens when you're actually appointed or elected to office and you walk into the rotunda and you walk up those stairs and you feel a sense of real responsibility to your constituents, but also just to the state of Oregon. I mean, it, it is a, a powerful moment. I felt that when people walked out that they were abdicating their responsibility, but also there's something inherent about threatening uh, the, a functioning democracy. And it was incredibly, it was beyond frustrating. Mm. It was, it, um, so I'm hoping that it leads to a conversation about lighting a fire under our electorate to wanna see change, mm. to be able to have a functioning democracy. I think there's something to be said, uh, just you know, coming from a voter perspective, when we feel as though there's some, you know, where we're sharing emotions with, with our elected officials. And I know there's always that, you know, that challenge to be very well composed and make sure that you're getting the right messaging out and you're not, you know, <laughs> you're not being uh, offensive or checking off, you know, any, any of the improper boxes, but just, you know, hearing those real human responses and, and just, just honest, like it, it upset me because we, we don't want to feel as though, you know, there's this much distance between the people that are working for us emotionally. So thank you again for that. Because I know, I just, I thought it was, it seemed like something out of a TV show. So you you left your job and you just went to another state 
and hid out and then a camera crew had to come find you like what are we talking about well i appreciate that the the um I do love the fact that Oregon has a citizen legislature mm-hmm. that people, uh, many people really approach this work as um, the ability to come in and work together and legislate and then be able to return into civic life. And the voices of constituents, the voices of people that will bring their raw emotion and their passion to the Capitol are more important, I will stress this, more important than what we hear out of the professional lobby. Mm. Uh, getting people actually showing up and sharing their voice and their frustration makes, I will say, makes more of a difference. Uh, and so I'm proud of the fact that we have a citizen legislature, that people return to their communities and are, are really listening to the voices of their constituents. Um, and what I'm hearing is that people are, are sick and tired of uh, people walking off the job expecting to get paid and then you know killing progressive legislation right we right. talked to rob nose and there's a few other things we want to talk about i hope we have a chance to talk sure. again pretty soon because we do have uh we have a ty carpenter from don't shoot pdx coming up in just a, a few minutes but we talked to rob nose who like you had a strong uh, pro-labor background and then got not not fully targeted but you know, abandoned by most of, of public labor in his reelection bid, and some of public labor teachers who were uh, who didn't like the PERS vote, uh, but who did benefit from the other side of that vote, at least from their from uh, the the senators who voted in Rob Nose's position. I think you may have been one of them. I presume you were one of them. Uh, that uh, that were money actually going towards schools that. The PERS vote cost support for a bunch of Democrats. My, the way I was reading the tea leaves of you becoming Senate Majority Leader is that might even be viewed as a move to reestablish those relationships with public labor. In the coming session, do you think there's going to be more of a chance to, is it more of a priority on remaking those friends or more priority on demonstrating some independence from from public labor, which has been the biggest funder for Democratic campaigns in the state. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I would say that I struggled uh, with that vote because there was a lot of pressure uh, in in the negotiations around uh, passing the corporate activities tax that would make fundamental investment in K-12 education uh, that we haven't seen to actually fund the quality. Yeah, of and I think we've covered that a bunch. And, and I think and you were alongside most Democrats in that vote. So I, I'm I, I actually, yeah. Jefferson, I didn't I don't mean to interrupt. I was I'm the only Democrat in leadership in either chamber that voted no on Senate Bill 1049. So yeah. I had I struggled with that conversation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I couldn't go back and look at my two sisters who teach in Portland public or my mom or my aunt who are adjunct faculty at PSU public employees or my brother who's a park ranger for 12 to parks and rec and cast a vote. Uh, when I told them that I was going to protect their retirement security, I just couldn't get there. And so, um, so I voted no on the floor, uh, on the, on that bill. So thank you for that info. The question I have now though, still it's even more powerful. I now I did see your election to Senate Majority Leader's sort of attempt by the caucus to reestablish those relationships. Feel free to disabuse that impression. And still that question, do you think now that there'll be more of an effort in the legislature to remake those friends or more of an effort to demonstrate some independence? 
Uh, I mean, I guess I would say, what does that mean? I mean, my values are my values. It's yeah. interesting. I'm sitting here uh, in what is the converted children's playroom, uh, looking out at a bunch of Dr. Seuss books and toys. Uh, this is where I've been relegated for uh, during the COVID crisis. My family kicks me up to the attic. Uh, and I'm holding this this thing in my hand from the Freedom Foundation. And I don't know if you know the Freedom Foundation. Basically, it's a national organization, corporate-funded, Koch Brothers-related, uh, that works on gutting collective bargaining rights for public sector unions and and silence the voices of, of workers. And I'm talking about bad uh, targeting. Uh, the fact that they've mailed me this packet and trying to get me to sign up with their Might have been a waste of the stamp. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a waste of the stamp. Uh, they're sixty here on the, on the upper right-hand corner. Um, I, I think that it's important to note that we have passed very progressive protections in the post-Janus, in the post-Supreme Court attack on public sector workers and their collective bargaining rights in Oregon. Uh, and I do think it is fundamental that where people have felt slighted as it relates to their retirement security, that we do rebuild that bridge. Uh, I hope that I can be someone in that conversation that makes that happen. Uh, at the same token, I think it's important that we sit down and talk about what we need to do to continue to strengthen the voice of working families and uh, specifically our, our you know, teachers, firefighters, nurses, uh, people that are working so hard, especially now in this crisis. I want to ask the some other questions that I hope we book this again soon so that we can, because I do want to talk to you about the redistricting proposal, uh, and this is going to be the redistricting session unless voters pass an initiative, unless they get the signatures, and then voters pass a an initiative to change that process. Would love your thoughts on that. Actually, any very quick thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I haven't honestly tracked the initiative very closely. I've been, uh, you know, usually I'm walking around downtown Portland and there's folks in Pioneer Courthouse Square and they're circulating petitions. The challenge is right now, people getting signatures on initiative petitions is, is mammoth. So I don't know whether or not they're going to qualify. I haven't read in depth what, what the initiative would do. The, uh, I would say just in general, when independent when there's independent analysis about Oregon's map what I've read is that it's pretty fair and I think back in 2011 and I think you might have been there but there was a real bipartisan effort to bring Democrats and Republicans together to work on a legislative map that gained bipartisan approval yep. and so uh, I think that you know commissions uh, aren't necessarily a bad idea um, some of what I've read is that uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that they would intentionally try to set up districts rather than looking at communities of interest, but trying to uh, set up competitive districts. And uh, for me, I think it's, you know, the first and primary lens is looking at what are the communities that make sense rather than slicing uh, school districts or cities apart, you know, so that you can set up this competitive strategy for districts. Uh, you know, I am proud to live in Oregon where there's over 1 million registered Democrats and there's, I think, something like 690,000 Republicans. To think that somehow we're going to be able to have a redistricting map that doesn't reflect um, the, that most Oregonians uh, by party registration, even when you talk about non-affiliated or independent voters, 
it's if you really drill in on polling or you talk to those folks, you know, there's the the non-affiliated voters in my district. You talk to them; they, they aren't voting for Donald Trump. They aren't sort of swing voters. They just have registered as independent or through motor voter. They ended up registering as you know non-affiliated. So, so I think that Oregon has done it well. Um, it, you know, so I'm open to the conversation, but but it'll be interesting to see what happens with that ballot measure. Before Ambush closes this out, one more question. The Supreme Court just had a historic ruling on campaign finance reform, and on the ballot coming up soon is SGR 18. It'll have an initiative number that is different than that to clarify, to clearly allow uh, campaign finance limits. That issue is going to come before you, is going to come before the legislature. I might want to talk about the policy there, but the seat of the majority leader much of the role of the majority leader is to keep the majority, is to coordinate the campaigns, is to work with the, they're usually called partners, and work with the funders, and work with the campaign managers, and all the candidates who are out there, who are new candidates who are trying to build the caucus or help reelect your Democratic colleagues in the Senate. Are you prepared or opening, or you've thought about how you might transform the way campaigns are done in order to you know, run them in a context of campaign finance reform in Oregon for the first time in almost ever. Yeah, I'm, I was very proud to be able to support the legislation that led to the referral that will be before voters in November, and I'll be actively supporting that passage. When we get into the legislative session in 2021, I do think it's important to have several uh, thoughts in mind. And I'll go back to 1996. It was the only election cycle when uh, we had the voters had passed campaign finance reform in 1994. We went through an election cycle then. And it was actually the first election that I had worked on. And I worked with a group of folks running independent expenditure campaigns on behalf of legislative candidates. And it was not optimal. We were sitting there doing our own polling. We were sending our own canvassers out. The candidate had no ability to coordinate and i think if you set the limits too low uh what you're going to have is that people are going to move the money into the back room they're going to run dark race you know these sort of uh, independent expenditures there's going to be no accountability for those resources until we can get it citizens united uh i think that you know i'm worried about some of that i do think we need appropriate limits so i don't think it's appropriate for people to just be able to drop giant corporate cash at the last minute and kind of make an attempt to buy buy elections. I would say a final thought on this is that there is a difference between working families putting together five or $10 a month into a collective effort to try to influence uh, elections. I, you know, I'm actively engaged in groups like the Oregon League of Conservation Voters. And when you see people putting or wanting to put five or $10 or $20 a month into a pack to try to um, to support candidates, those small donor packs. I hope that we're not looking at silencing those voices. I do think it's important that that we're recognizing that that people have a right to put small donations together to be able to provide support for candidates um, that they that they support. Well, we'd love to talk about that more. We got to get wrapping, and the and Andrew Salinas and others have been working on a set of principles on this thing. I've you know I'm a sort of a nerd on the topic, but I find it re- all the things you said it really important elements of that discussion, and it's such an important discussion to be having. Ambush, thank you so much, Senator Wagner, for your time this morning. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It means a lot. Thanks, man.